So this evening, we're continuing with the fourth aggregate, uh, sorry, (laughs) with the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Um, And the next piece of this is the five aggregates, which is an odd word. The Pali is khanda, and it's translated often as a heap or a bundle or collection of stuff. Tanisaro Bhikkhu calls it a pile of bricks, and we use these bricks to pave the road to enlightenment. So it's actually the Buddha's description of all of the elements of experience, inside, outside, in nature, in society, everything, all phenomena. And it's a constellation of continually changing elements. And in the first noble truth that um, Ajahn Sumedho spoke of last night, it says, birth is dukkha, aging and sickness and death are suffering. Association with what we don't want, being separated from what we do want, and not getting what we want, in short, is suffering. And then it goes on to say that, in short, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. So what are these five? The first is form, and that's all the elements of the material world, the physical world, ourselves and everything physical. Feeling, Vedana, that we were talking about the other evening. Perception, sanya. And then a word, sankara, which means mental formations or volition or intention. And it's really all of the mind states, thoughts and emotions. And then consciousness, vijnana. So form is physical, and all the other ones are mental. Feeling, perception, and consciousness have to do with knowing. And they arise together. Sankara, or mental formations, are what we do with what we know. They're our relation to experience. So they're all the thoughts, moods, and emotions that come as a result, often, of the interactions of the other three. And they're the five focuses of the grasping mind, because the tendency is to experience them as some form of I, me, myself. So in other words, the body or form is where I am. Feeling tone is how I am. Perception, what I am. Mental formation, sankara, is um, then uh, why I am. In other words, why I'm acting, why I'm doing, thinking, whatever's happening. And then consciousness is like the executive function. It's whereby, how, whereby I am, the, the knowing quality. So, for example, um, your consciousness, consciousness is receiving through the ear door form sounds and perception is um, experiencing those as words and the words might be pleasant, unpleasant or neutral so there's a feeling tone and then depending on your experience of that you'll have mental formations around it Maybe you'll be bored or interested. And then that will go further to either drifting into fantasy or paying attention if it's interesting. So all of those five are operating all the time, whatever is going on. And they're really important. There's a whole um, big section in the Samyutta Nikaya, whole chapters on the five aggregates. 
and really they are the heart of how self is created and how dukkha results. They underlie the Four Noble Truths and they're essential to understanding the Four Noble Truths. They're all the ways that we get caught in clinging and grasping. What, whenever we cling or identify to any one of them, it leads to suffering. And there's a contraction of my or mine or myself with any one of them. The Buddha said that he was only perfectly enlightened once he understood these five processes, five aggregates, in certain ways, fully understanding their nature, understanding that they arise and pass and cease, and understanding their conditioned nature. They're not belonging to or of a self, they condition each other, they're interdependent. Only when he really understood that could he become free. And the difference between a Buddha and an ordinary being is that the us ordinary beings experience life as these grasped processes, five of them. Whereas the Buddha experiences no grasping of me, myself, mine, and therefore is free. And he didn't say that these five aggregates are suffering, but more we all that we have to get rid of them more that it's about understanding, changing our relationship to them so that we don't get caught and solidify around them in certain ways. We understand them as they actually are, impermanent and impersonal and conditioned. And also in, in these particular times, well, in any time, really, when we contemplate them, and this has been my experience, it really exposes all our patterns of identification and our unseen biases, where we develop views that we didn't even know we held that lead to harm, unconscious ones conditioned by the society that we live in patterns and identifications, ways we define and reduce or limit ourselves, ways unseen or seen that we define or limit other people in society, ways that lead to suffering. And so by understanding how this happens, we can begin to have ways of seeing that lead to healing and benefit. So that's why they're so important. Because it's really a way of changing the ways we look at the world to lead to freedom, not just for us, but to, for everyone. Thich Nhat Hanh described them as rivers. And he says, seeing deeply into the rivers of the five aggregates Avalokiteshvara, that's one of the great beings, discovered the empty nature of them all and became free. He overcame suffering by discovering the empty nature of all of these. And these five rivers make up our experience. So the invitation this evening is to explore along with me these rivers, to directly experience them for yourselves as you listen, rather than think about or trying to understand or get into the head about them, sense into how the experience of each aggregate is for you. So one of the key things about understanding the nature of the aggregates and understanding the nature of this one and these ones 
is awareness of their impermanence and of their conditioned nature. In the Satipatthana Sutta, at the beginning of this section on the aggregates, it says, one knows such is material form, such, such is its nature, such its arising, such its passing away, and the same for perception and feeling and so forth. One knows how it is, how it arises, how it passes away. The so-called lion's roar of the Buddha was in teaching that direct experience of every aspect of the self, of other, of the world, every aspect of experience is subject to change. And that by, that, by the direct experience of that, it undermines the identification with it. And the less identification there is with the aggregates, the less we suffer when they change. The Buddha said, give up the aggregates. None of them is truly your own. And in one of his teachings, in one of the suttas, he's talking in um, Jetta's Grove, one of the places where he would give his teachings. And he said to all the monastics gathered there, the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, he said, suppose someone were to come and take all the leaves and some of the trees out of this grove and burn them. Would you all suffer because of that? And um, the monks and nuns said no. And so he said, why? And they said, because they are not ourselves. They do, don't belong to ourselves. And while well, you could say these days that actually they are. <laughs> but this was the teaching in that moment. And then he says, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And what is not yours? Form is not yours. Feeling is not yours. And sense into this as I'm saying it. Perception is not yours. Mental formations are not yours. Consciousness is not yours. If you let go of it, it will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And there's a chant that many of the monastics um, do every day to kind of embody this view. And I'll just do a little bit of it um, in English. Attachment to form is dukkha. Attachment to perception is dukkha. And then for each one, form is impermanent. Form is not self. So it's attachment to each one is dukkha. Then it's impermanent. And then it's not self. And by chanting that over and over, it begins to settle in the direct experience. So this grasping and aversion and holding are all ways of clinging. And we cling in basic ways that limit us and also lead to suffering. And the first way, and Ajahn Sumedho was talking a little bit about this last night, the first way is appropriation. And that's a form of tanha, where it's mine. This is mine. I own it. I control it. It belongs to me. So that's appropriation. Then there's identification. This, this is, um, this dep- I'm depressed. I'm angry. I'm anxious. 
This is me. Our body, our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings are me. That's another way of identifying. We think it's who we are. And then another way is views. We identify with our views. I'm right. (laughs) My belief. And we, we identify with it so closely that it becomes the only belief. Because we're so identified, we don't realize that we're seeing that way, not that we've picked it up and become it. Um, Just a very simple story. Um, Some years ago, I I, um, teach at a certain retreat center where we have to take all our cushions, zafus, zabutons every time we teach there. And I always take my own, and I'd taken a certain... Um, Zafu and this was the one that I'd sat my first three month retreat with and so I would always loan it out but it was kind of my precious <laughs> and at the end of the retreat um, when I came to collect everything it wasn't there and so I was sad and I thought oh well I hope whoever it is enjoys it and then a year later I came back to the same center and this man walks in with my Zafu. (laughs) And I could feel the contraction of mine. And then he became the one who took my Zafu. (laughs) And for the first few days, every time I saw him, he was the one who took my Zafu. (laughs) And it was so interesting seeing the identification around it. Mine and the contraction and the suffering. (laughs) And he was completely oblivious. It was this unseen (laughs) appropriation. Um, And so at some point I did deal with it, but it was so... (laughs) I realized that this was interfering with my capacity to be... (laughs) have a interaction with him that was (laughs) neutral. (laughs) I did it in a reasonably skillful way. (laughs) But I did go home with my Zafu. (laughs) So notice, (laughs) notice as you're going around my place in line, my seat in the hall, all the ways that things become mine. I had a friend who described, he realized when cars were passing him that they went into his space. This is my space that's in front of my car. (laughs) You know, there's so many ways we appropriate um, that are very interesting. So it isn't about grasping no self as a concept. That's not what we're trying to do. But realizing, seeing through Dharma way, through Dharma eyes, the ways things actually are. That's the idea of it. So that the sense of me, mine, isn't a static thing. There's, it's not that there's me and the body and mine that I own and control. When we feel that way, when things change, we can body changes, things in our lives, relationships change, we can get um, distressed, anxious, agitated. And as the Buddha said, those who understand this form of of seeing, who can see through Dharma eyes, don't cling. The same things may happen, but they're not agitated or anxious doesn't mean you don't act, but that you're not suffering because of the clinging. And the other thing that the Buddha taught um, along with this, it's not just that uh, these aggregates are not self, or not belonging to a self, or they, they make up a self, it's they in and of themselves are empty. They're not solid either. They're phenomena that are changing all the time. 
And so he spoke about, in a beautiful sutta, these five ways of seeing. And it's of seeing form like foam. He described it as like a lump of foam that dissolves, is insubstantial, and falls away. Form is like foam. And that feelings and Gil referred to this the other night, are like bubbles on the surface of a moving river. They arise and dissolve, arise and dissolve over and over. Feeling tone is changing so quickly, like bubbles. And then perception is like a mirage. It arises, it's illusory, and it's not real. So often, It's misperception. And so not to solidify around perception, but to be open about how we perceive things. And I'll refer back to these um, as we go through um, with each of the um, aggregates. The sankara, or Um, formations, as they're called, are like a plantain. And a plantain is this plant that has many kind of sheaths in it, all of different, each with its own characteristic, in the same way that there are many different phenomena within mental formations, all with their own characteristics coming and going. Wholesome mind states, unwholesome mind states, many different moods and emotions, all coming and going. And then consciousness, he described as a magic show, mysterious, like a a box of tricks, Um, constantly, again, coming and going, mysterious. So these five ways of seeing form like foam. I just sense that. Um, The body insubstantial, like foam, everything around us like that. And the also we're understanding that any one element in all the things around us, even awareness, rather than thinking them of them as real, while other things are fabricated, they're all, the whole show is a magic show. The whole thing is illusory, a magic show, a magician's trick. And we'll continue exploring that. But just hold that loosely, open to not knowing. So we'll talk a little more about foam. Form. (laughs) Um, Both. (laughs) <laughs> it's an umbrella term and it includes all the, di- all the ways and different aspects, past, present, future, near, far, ancestors, future beings, um, every possible way of conceiving form. And it's a direct knowing of that, the changing flow of nature. And it's mindfulness that enables us to get in touch with that. As our mindfulness deepens and stabilizes, we start to elucidate the concepts, to see through them a little. When we have a continuity on changing objects, it dispels the sense of solidity. And it's not that we're giving up the level of form. We're more aware of a total reality. This is what um, Ajahn Chah says. You should know both the universal and the personal, the realm of form and the freedom not to cling to them. The forms of the world have their place. But in another way, there's nothing there. And to be free, we need to respect both these truths. So that's that totality of view, of looking, that can encompass both.
So if you remember the teaching when we were talking about the elements of this is not me, this is not mine, this is just earth element, internally, externally. For all of the elements, not me, not mine, just earth element. No inside, no outside. I think that sense of openness, of boundary. And at the same time, there's this body that eats and does all these various things, and there's a continuity in this body that's changing all the time. And feeling tone, Vedana, that Gil was talking about, and just exploring so beautifully. To, again, for this, to see with proper wisdom, this is not me, this I am not, this is not myself, all of it. And attachment to feeling is dukkha. Dukkha is impermanent and not self. The feeling is, feeling is impermanent. Feelings are not self. Dukkha is impermanent. <laughs> and that whenever feelings of pleasant or unpleasant arise, we can contemplate the impermanence in them and see them coming and going. And when we do that, it's possible to not cling. And when we don't cling, there is um, no agitation. And that leads to a sense of peace, of ease. And we can see how we identify with a feeling tone. As soon as there's an unpleasant feeling, I'm feeling whatever it is. I'm feeling this, and we become the one who feels. And once we've become the one who feels, a whole bunch of proliferation adds onto this. This shouldn't be happening to me, or so-and-so shouldn't be doing this. And we start to see, as we explore the coming and going, coming and going, and changing nature of feeling tone, that while pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, will always be coming and going. The grasping and then the aversion are optional. It's possible for those to release. And sometimes when we have uncomfortable feelings, we can take it one further and we, the feeling may not be okay and then we become the one who is not okay. And so there's this deepening of the conditioning of somehow being wrong or not okay. That we're not even aware that we're doing. We both believe and behave that it's personal. Because we feel bad, we are bad. So perception. That arises out of contact with all sorts of object, and it's the naming, the recognizing, from very simple naming to bell and clock to complicated assumptions, views, concepts, um, belief in a permanent, solid sense of self. And it's also more than verbal labeling. We can have a perception of an object without there being language around it. It's experience. Um, some of you may have seen some of um, a cat, cat video a few years ago where they were um, dropping a banana on the floor in front of a cat. And the cats leapt straight off all four feet into the air like that, turned around and ran off. Banana to them for some reason was snake. And whatever it was, all the cats did it. I must, they must have been, I don't know how many cats, but it clearly, <laughs> I doubt that the cats went snake. Maybe, I don't know, whatever perception they have of it. But it's that seeing of something, before we've even named it often, that there can be a re- reactivity to. So it's an experience, a forming of an experience as a result of contact. 
with of consciousness coming together and feeling. On the surface, perception can seem solid. But as we with mindfulness pay closer and closer attention to it, we can see the different perceptions arising and passing away moment by moment. And as we see that, as we see how perceptions change constantly, it loosens the attachment to them and to our views and opinions. And we start to see that it is a mirage. Um, Like me with the (laughs) clickers here. it's, it's the, this changing in perception that makes us understand how fabricated things are, the stories that we've concocted and create a perception about a person, about a situation that so often is illusory. And we can notice how the labels and the perceptions in turn affect our feeling tone and in turn affect the formations that gather around them. Another very simple one. I was hiking here one summer and um, up the hill, and it was hot. And soon I was sort of had this big halo of flies around me. And it was unpleasant. And um, suddenly I realized this is my face and my body, and I don't like these flies. I hate them. You know, there was this mine about the flies. And, um, and it was perceived as unworkable. The situation was unworkable. Something has to be done. And what was happening was what you can call fascination conditioning, by which the more I look at the flies and the thing, the more upset, like Ajahn Samedo and Gwendolyn <laughs> last night. The same kind of thing. And when... I saw that, I realized the flies are not actually biting. You know, they're just there. And there's a capacity to turn the attention away from the fascination conditioning. To be able to have a more open awareness and just see the perception change so quickly and the feeling tone alters so quickly. Sometimes we have really fixed perceptions. And one of my um, Tibetan teachers um, called those kind of concepts like ice. And that it's by paying mindful attention that those concepts can begin to melt into free-flowing water that is no longer um, hindering us or keeping us trapped. There was someone on a retreat I was teaching who was really caught in a bunch of very difficult concepts. And together we created a snowball. (laughs) And gradually, over a few days, the snowball melted and the concepts and perception released. And so it's having that sense of the impermanence and impersonal nature of them. So the problem with our perceptions are that we, that when they get so solid that we get really caught in that belief when it's really an empty construct, a construct. And the same is with our identities and our beliefs about ourselves. We create notions of self through all our past experiences and it, the persona, the Latin for that, is, the la, is really Latin for mask. So we create this mask. And there's nothing solid underneath it. And gradually, as we see through these perceptions, the mask begins to dissolve. And it's not saying that there's no, no existence. It's not nihilism. And actually, it's not a loss It's a relief to um, release these ideas about self. And 
sometimes I've had the realization that the fact that there's nothing solid behind the mask isn't a problem. Um, I would think, oh, I'm losing it, when actually I never had it. There was actually nothing there in the first place to lose. And that, wow, <laughs> that's really neat. <laughs> and there's sort of a release of fear <laughs> when you realize that. And it's a mystery because there's individuality and interconnectedness, both. And there's also this emptiness and um, um, foam-like nature to it all. We're seeing through the illusion of the self that we've constructed, seeing through that illusion. And sometimes there is fear as, we, as these <laughs> concepts about self-release. And that's why metta and compassion practice is so valuable because they act as a loving support. So we can release into the safety of that and allow some of these old holdings and misperceptions to relieve. Because there's a mind state that wants anything to identify with. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be something negative. Please give me something to attach to. Um, But the more... Um, comfortable we are with just that sense of groundlessness, not having to hold on to anything, the less need there is, the less anxiety there is, and actually the more faith, trust, and confidence there is. And it's this fading of the perception of these misperceptions of self. They start to fade away perceptions of body or whatever they are. And some things are more fixed and we identify with more strongly. Some thoughts um, and emotions, the perceptions of those can pass and fade really quickly. And some things like some ways we identify with the body are more solid. Um, I think I mentioned a retreat where I was experiencing the tinnitus very loudly, and also a lot of knee pain. And so I was talking to my teacher, and I was saying, you know, um, I can really experience a lot of uh, freedom, but I've got this fixation (laughs) and identification with my knee and with the tinnitus. And so in that moment, he had me just, you know, form is like foam, and I was able to dissolve, let it dissolve and have this feeling of spaciousness. And they had an image of my knee floating down the river. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's great. You know, <laughs> it's still solid, but at least it's not mine. <laughs> uh, and so it's a process. And um, having respect for that process, because our ideas about how fast or slow it should go are also. Um, not solid. They're also empty. And perception can take us out of immediacy because so often what we do is we have a reference point based on past experiences and that takes us out of the freshness of the moment. We may perceive another based on some view of them from the past or some story and not experience that person fresh in this moment or a situation or any aspect. So um, mental formations, these are all the things that are included um, like thoughts, moods, emotions, mind states, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, all included in this aggregate, all the ways of relating to experience. And in, through not knowing, we attach to them, identify with them in some way, and they reinforce a sense of self that we're not aware of. And we act as though those, those things were permanent and true. 
I can't do this. I'm a failure. I'm this. I'm that. He or she is, is whatever it is. And when I've been caught in that, I have found the chant really helpful. And just to be walking or somewhere, something, and remind myself, form is impermanent. Mind states are impermanent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Mind states are not self. Perceptions are not self. Attachment to perception is dukkha. Oh, <laughs> maybe this view could dissolve. It's helpful just to play with it because you really begin to embody it and get a sense of how it works. And so then any state that's arising, you begin to really see. Not permanent, not me, not myself. Just fear arising, guilt arising, whatever it is arising. And there can be a stillness and space. Gil was guiding us this morning, the stillness between thoughts. As we begin to notice that, um, we see that this awareness itself isn't angry or afraid. This is something that's arising It arose, we believed it, we identified with it, and so forth. This whole chain of events happens so quickly. And through our practice here, we can begin to see that chain of events and have some freedom. And they're just not personal, they're conditioned. They arise due to causes and conditions, and when those conditions change, they cease, or something else arises. It's not personal. And we tend to want the one who knows to be I. We want to identify with being the one who knows, and not with the one who doesn't know. And, um, you know, we can have a wise moment, or we can have a stupid moment rather than becoming either of those. However, you have to watch for, I'm having a wise moment, because then it's my wise moment, (laughs) or I'm the one who's having the wise moment. So there's these subtle ways that we hold on to them, positive or unwholesome, to be careful of that. The other thing... Um, we can uh, we can see is we're we're aware of skillful states, and then we become the knower of insights. I'm the one who's having these insights. My insights. They're arising and passing. Insights arising and passing. Owning them arising and passing. Clinging arising and passing. Clinging is also um, in the fourth aggregate. It's also empty and arising and passing, which is such a relief. It's not a permanent, solid thing. And it's also a relief not to identify with every passing mind state. And we start to see that that it's like just thoughts sinking themselves. There's one, and there's another, and there's another one. And you can see them sort of um, well, which one's going to have the win the day? <laughs> I was um, working with sleepiness once, which is one of my um, favorite hindrances. And I was um, sort of sitting, very sleepy, getting Vipassana whiplash over and over. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so the thought comes, thought comes, open your, open your eyes. And then um, um, breathe in more deeply. Um, stand up, and you know, these various things. And then this little voice comes along and says, well, when you've decided which of them to do, let me know. I'm going to take a little nap while you're deciding. (laughs) And so just to see them and not own them is very freeing. Just the mind creating. Whatever arises is coming and going, all of it. Reactions and coming and going, they're not personal either. And they're also empty. 
They're empty of anything solid. So consciousness, that's that simple knowing, the just um, the knowing that comes with contact with a sense door, um, knowing hearing, and it's arising and passing away. Hearing is known, seeing is known, um, thoughts are known, just constantly coming and going. And we subtly identify, or not so subtly, and become the one who knows. And it's just these um, billions of of moments of consciousness, so rapid that it seems like a solid thing. And really, it's flowing so fast that there isn't anything to hold on to. It's changing so quickly. A moment of holding on can be known. Um, And we can reflect. Who's experiencing this? So you might try that sometime when there's a difficult mind state or, or at a t- even at a time when the mind is very still. Just dropping it in. Who's experiencing this? And just be open to what you are aware of. Not looking for a particular thing, but just knowing what happens. It's as though... There's no one in control. There's no control center. And neurobiology has verified that. Thoughts, but no thinker. Decisions, but no decider. It's this mystery of the network of cause and effect. And being open to that mystery. That's the magic show. Everything is appearing and disappearing. What's doing What's doing the knowing is unfindable. It's, it's fascinating. So just for a moment have a sense of there is a body. Just the experience, there is a body. Awareness filling the body. There is a heart. Perhaps the heart's feeling closed, perhaps the heart's radiating love, or there's a spreading feeling. There is a mind, spacious, unfindable, contracted, however it is. It's just happening. Any perception is simply a moment of knowing, It's just happening. There is knowing. And we can support cultivating that um, by sometimes substituting in our inner speech is for I am. So I'm afraid. Fear is like however it is. So we're, we're releasing the I in our narration. Notice how often I, me, or mine occurs in, the, in our inner narrator. And see what it's like to have knowing, have a more passive voice, being known. Who's experiencing this? Whose perceptions, thoughts are these? Not me, not mine. And what are you aware of? So emptiness doesn't mean not exist non-existence. It's more that things don't exist the way we think they do with our ordinary mind. It's as though um, this, the relative that Arjun, relative and absolute in a way that Arjun Chah was talking about, are existing together. And as the, the mind is more awake, it's a seamless unity. And as we're learning, we're experiencing them as different. 
So whenever we attach to any of the five aggregates, whenever we grasp or identify with any of them and call it I or mine, we can feel a, a, a resistance or constriction, some kind of subtle contraction. So whenever you notice there's some kind of contraction, you can notice, what am I identified? What's being identified here? What's the holding? What's being held on to? It's helpful to do that. So it's not a nothingness as we start to release the sense of I. It's bright, open, alive, spacious. There's a fullness for possibility. It's very freeing. The concepts are coming and going, and they're not held so tightly. So it's possible to have a sense of immediacy and freshness and lightness. Sometimes we can have a strange feeling of the mind states following, at least I've had this, following one after another. And they're even believing in themselves, each thinking, <laughs> each thinking that they're a self. And there they all are, believing themselves. And it's a sort of strange feeling to see that process and yet know that it's, it's natural process, there's nothing wrong with it but there's a way of being free and not caught in it. So again, it's not about getting rid of, it's about understanding how it is that grasping makes us suffer and how it's possible to release it a little. So that we can be empty of clinging, empty of struggle. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, when we experience the five aggregates as empty of a separate self, then we can be full of everything in the cosmos. That beautiful sense of freedom. And we experience the spaciousness and the interdependentness, the interconnectedness of everything. Interdependence and the Buddha's teaching on karma ethical responsibility are really important balance. We need that. Because non-identification doesn't mean being irresponsible. We can hold both ways of seeing, both ways of looking, but have more flexibility and less clinging. We can have a flexible view of ourselves, our others, of others in the world. We can have a certain identification when it's beneficial and skillful. Perhaps being a mother or a teacher or a healthcare worker or um, bus driver, whatever, whatever that role is that in that moment is necessary for um, communication and functioning and caring and holding it loosely it not being all of what we are. And the more we have this deep understanding of what it is to be a self, the more compassion there is for ourselves and others. And we can explore the identities that we're attached to and the impact that has on ourselves and others. And... Um, it's, I've, I found that it's such um, a helpful and important thing um, these days. Um, this capacity to be aware of individual and collective identities and of the assumptions and misperceptions and the harm that that causes so that we're taking our practice and our dharma eyes into seeing how suffering is caused in the world, even on retreat, or wherever we are, by misperception. And how um, um, I was in South Africa um, a few years ago, 
um, leading a retreat, and we had a group of people that were um, white South Africans, black South Africans, people of mixed race in this group. And there was a white South African who was saying, it's the rainbow nation now. We're all equal. There's equal opportunity for everyone, and it's wonderful. And I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at the people in the, wo- in the room, and I'm thinking, how can he not see what's around him? Outside this retreat center, the, um, the people who are serving the retreat center are Zulu people, living in huts, and some without electricity. And this is a, an equal rainbow nation. Something doesn't fit here. And then I thought, well, I'm, what unseen biases and unseen privilege am I working with? And it made me really look. How can I see through Dharma eyes in a way that uncovers those for me? And... Um, Some time ago, also, I was teaching um, a program um, called The Path of Engagement, which was a very diverse community. And I was teaching it, and I said or acted in a way that was hurtful to um, one of the um, African-American women there. And she told me, and I, I realized how through my unseen bias of education and privilege, I'd been unaware and caused harm. And what's precious about the Dharma is that at first I could feel the contraction of I did something wrong. And I could easily have become the guilty one or the victim or whatever it was. And that would have not served either of us. And I was able for just enough time to not take it personally. And in not taking it personally, there was being able to be responsible for having a different way of seeing and learning from it. And so this is the value in our lives of these five aggregates. So that we can... um, use our Dharma eyes to take responsibility for the ways that we um, create harm and also the ways that we create benefit. And if we don't take it personally, then we can learn. It doesn't become all about me. And um, so it's, it's... this is here on retreat is a wonderful opportunity to play with these aggregates, to really explore and notice our misperceptions and not take them personally and see them as impermanent and see how attaching to things is dukkha. And so I realize I kind of got carried away here. But I love this teaching. It's helped me in my life so much um, to feel more free. So I'll end um, with this. um, It's from one of the discourses. And um, a bhikkhuni sila has sat down at the foot of a tree to, um, to meditate. And Mara comes, and he wants to arouse fear and irritation and despair and terror in her. He wants to make her concentration fall away. And so he says to her, By whom has this puppet been created? Where is the maker of this puppet? Where has the puppet arisen? Where does the puppet cease? And so it occurs to her, Who's this? Ah, this is Mara, desiring to make me fall away from concentration. And so she understands this, and she replies to him in verse, This puppet is not made by itself, nor is it made by another. It's dependent on a cause, and with the cause's breakup, it will cease. Just as when a seed is sown in a field, it grows dependent on factors. 
requiring the soil's nutrients and moisture. Just so, these aggregates and elements, these bases of sensory conduct, have become too dependent on a cause. And with the causes break up, they will cease. And Mara, realizing that Bhikkhuni Sila knows me, sad and disappointed, he disappeared right there. So may you all overcome Mara. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.